Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Emerging Pod, where we guide emerging people into emerging careers. Today's guest is Andy McMahon. Andy has a background in physics. He started his career leading teams of data scientists in startups and small companies before joining NatWest as an ML engineer, and he's now head of ML Ops at NatWest Group. Andy, good to have you with us. Well, thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. So you've started, uh, you, you studied uh, physics at university, you did a PhD. Uh, yep. How did you find it and how did you get into data science from there? Uh, yeah, so I always thought I would be an academic physicist. So I loved science, was really excited by mathematics and physics in particular. So ended up doing a theoretical physics degree, which meant I was doing not many experiments because anytime I touched an experiment, I would break the laws of the universe. So <laughs> I could never, I could never show basic things like Ohm's <laughs> law working with simple circuits and things. So, so I was ba basically better at the theory. Um, so I got, I got into that and that played to my strengths. And then through that in undergraduate, I learned C++ because being a theoretical physicist now really means being a computational physicist. So you learn a lot about programming, you learn some skills. And this was before I think Python was too much in the mainstream, at least for physics. So learn C++ in a very intense course, someone who'd never programmed or um, really had much exposure to computer science before. And that opened my eyes a bit to what was possible with computers. And I just bore that in mind as I, as I went through. So, so I loved my undergraduate. Um, really stretched my mind thinking about all sorts of crazy things like black holes and stars collapsing and particle physics. And But then um, it got to my postgraduate time and I had to decide what I wanted to do. So I thought I would do something slightly more practical. So when I went to Imperial College in London, I joined a program where the idea was to do a master's and PhD on industrially relevant materials, but still tackling theoretical problems relevant to them. So I studied basically the atomic and electronic properties of solar cells. And it was at the time when this particular solar cell material was very exciting because it was super cheap to make and super efficient. I was studying why it didn't like light, which is bad for a solar cell, why it didn't like oxygen, which is bad for a solar cell on Earth, and why it didn't like water, which is very bad for a solar cell in Scotland, where I live, so, so or, or in the UK, <laughs> where I was studying. So... I basically did that for a few years, but through that time, I realized I didn't want to be an academic physicist. Um, my brain doesn't really work too well on focusing on very specific topics for long periods of time. I like quite broad views. I like being able to jump between different problems and kind of expand my horizons that way. So at, at the time, during my PhD, uh, this was the time of the Harvard Business Review article about data scientists being the sexiest job of the 21st century. <laughs> uh, so I thought, okay, that sounds that sounds about right. That sounds good. So so I basically started teaching myself Python, teaching myself a bit more programming, teaching myself machine learning, built up a bit of a portfolio on GitHub. Um, and then, then, then from there, I just thought, this is where I want to work. So I ended up going into this this area and it's evolved from there over the past few years. What was the first data science project that you've that you've done that you tried to tackle? Oh, it's a great question. I think the first thing that was prototypical data science would have been I was generating data for my simulations for my PhD, 
Mm-hmm. And I basically started playing around with how to automate the analysis as much as possible. So I started writing these Python scripts. You can see them on my GitHub. They're called PhD scripts. They're terrible. You look back and you think, I wouldn't have hired me. But, um, <laughs> but it's like that was the first time I'd started thinking about this, the use of Python in an automated way to, to sort of start analyzing data sets and just creating automatic pipelines, basically, for that and automating workflows. The first thing that was more pure data science was probably, I never actually submitted anything to Kaggle, but I did play around with Kaggle notebooks and sort of experimented locally, did some basic forecasting, you know, the house price data, um, some retail data, things like that, playing around with regression um, and basic classification algorithms. Was and then the- when I went into to work, it obviously, it got real pretty fast. <laughs> so it became a bit more realistic. Was it the Boston housing data set? It was the Boston housing data set, exactly. Classic, <laughs> right? Classic. A rite of passage for every data scientist. <laughs> Must have. Or at least it used to be. Now it's, you have to run something with GPT-3 and PyTorch. <laughs> it's, moved, it's moved on a bit. So then Andy, um, from your PhD, you transitioned into your first role, which is which was at a startup company called Streamba. Yep. And yep. you were head of data science and machine learning. How did, first of all, how did you find the opportunity and how did you go straight to being the head of data science yep. in machine learning? Yeah. Um, so I'll start with the, the important point that it sounds like a very grandiose title, but the department consisted of me. <laughs> so, so I wasn't head of much. <laughs> um, but I think, so this, the story basically was, Looking, I was looking for a role, and I was looking for a role back home. So I'd moved to London to study for a few years. I was coming back home, and I was basically looking for companies in the central belt of Scotland, Glasgow, Edinburgh. I'm from Glasgow. That kind of area that were doing cool stuff with data. I found this company. I liked their website. They seemed quite punchy. They kind of they had the Google NatPod chairs. They said something about a coffee subscription. They got delivered to the office, and I thought, "Well, this sounds this sounds good." So this is what a startup's about. <laughs> so I, I basically emailed the CEO because I knew it was a small company from the website. But I emailed the CEO directly and just said, "I don't know if you're hiring just now, but I think I'm relatively smart. I can pick up things quite quickly, and I think what you're doing is super cool." Because their website was all about optimizing the energy supply chain and working with big energy players. And I thought, well, that's kind of tangentially related to my PhD, which was solar cells. This was oil and gas, but it was still about energy. And yeah, from that, the guy said, come come have a chat. Um, it was very funny, though, because I turned up to the office and he totally forgot about me. So he was like, <laughs> he thought it was like delivering Amazon or something. So he was like, who are you? <laughs> and I said, we had a chat. <laughs> I thought, okay, I've blown it already. But uh, he brought me in. We had a conversation. He was talking to me about the company. And I was just spitting out some ideas. Oh, you could do this. And if you've got data about the ship platform, you could optimize that. And you could, you know, and I think he liked that. And then from that, they basically said, we liked you. Do you want to be our first proper data scientist and basically lead up what's going to become our data science strategy? So that's where the head of title came from to make it sound more impressive when I spoke to people. (laughs) But basically, I. I owned the, the development of their data science strategy on the back of the, the platform they built. Um, so yeah, that was how that was how I got the job. So 
I think this is a recurring theme in my career where I do what kind of Richard Branson says a bit, where you apply for the job you're not quite ready for. So I never, I never sort of wait to think, oh, I'm definitely going to get this. I almost go for stuff where I'm like, 40% chance I'm going to get this. <laughs> and that's usually worked for me so far. So that's how it started. That's a good approach because that's how you get stretched and you learn. If you just apply for a job that you're overly qualified for, you're going to get bored and you're not going to do your best work. Exactly. Uh, so I, I love that approach. And I love the fact that you just reached out and emailed the CEO. Um, did you think about applying for job boards and just go, going through the traditional kind of process? I guess the question that I'm, I'm impl implying is uh, how much awareness did you have about the job market and mm. how intentional were you in your, in your job search, I yeah. suppose, at that age coming out of university? Yeah, yeah, no, good question. So I was definitely looking actively elsewhere. So I'd went to careers fairs and I'd kind of, you know, had the usual chat um, with people there. And I think the, the, the challenge I had a bit was... I think I was speaking to people at these fairs and it was usually graduate programs. So they'd be like, if you've just done your bachelor's, come JP Morgan or some other company, come work for us, et cetera. And I was kind of like, I'm looking for something a bit more than that. I've kind of done all this stuff in my PhD. I've learned a lot of stuff on the side. I think I can sort of do something a bit more stretching. And a few of them were kind of like, that's not quite this program. This is very much cookie cutter shape. Um, I still thought about applying to a few of them, um, but that was when I started branching out and thinking, well, what if I just more directly go to places? Um, so I was doing a bit, a bit of everything, really. Um, I think I'd, I think I'd sent a few emails away to certain companies and I'd not heard back, or you know, I never, I don't think I got a flat rejection, but there was the usual <laughs> silence, <laughs> nothing coming back, sort of thing, yeah. which everyone experiences at some point. Um, so yeah, I was, I was definitely actively looking and I was very keen on getting something that I felt was at the right level for me. So I, I had to balance the, the kind of the desire for that with the need to earn some money. So I wasn't being too Puritan about it, but I think I, I got very lucky uh, with that role at Streamba. Nice. Um, so then at Streamba, you, you arrive and you're the first data scientists. Mm -hmm. You have to shape up a function. You just finished university. Yeah. What's in your mind? First of all, what was the state of data in Streamba? Yeah. And then how do you think about starting to shape up a function despite maybe not having the most um, kind of experience of the world of work and building teams? I think, I think that's an, a generous way of putting it, Alex. I didn't have a clue <laughs> what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think... The biggest thing for me was I came into Streamba and they were, say, I can't remember the exact number, another 11, 12 people. And they were all software engineers to their bones. They'd all done computer science. <laughs> the tool they'd built was incredible. They'd, it's an amazing platform. You can go on their website, streamba.com, I think it is, and you can see screenshots of their platform. And the day was in great shape. They'd done a brilliant job of building an excellent day architecture, which... I've, I've, it's still not as common as you'd think. So having got that right a few years ago was really an incredible achievement. Um, so there's a lot of Google Cloud Platform tech, lots of really great stuff, great pipelines, use a big query, all of these things. So the data was in a really great shape and they're an amenable for analysis. But the biggest thing I was thinking was, what, what, is, what does it mean to work 
in an environment where I'm a sort of wacky scientist, but everyone else is a hardcore software engineer. So I had to learn very quickly about, you know, software development practices, good version control, release cycles, life, the, the life cycle management of software. I had to learn about, you know, how you interact with a platform, microservices. I had to learn a lot of stuff very quickly, but I think that was great for me because it meant I wasn't stuck in a role where a lot of my contemporaries maybe were a few years ago where you were just, you know, you were quite protected from all of that and just said, go play with some algorithms. It was very much, I was being asked right away, how will this integrate with the platform? You know, where's the where's the API we need to hit? And I was like, what the hell's an API? <laughs> you know, so, so I kind of, that was the main thing that was going through my head was, I have a lot to learn here, but everything seems in a good shape. And they were a great group. Um, and they're now doing really well, actually. They've, they've done a lot of great stuff recently, getting involved in a clean energy center in um, the Netherlands and all these things. So they've they've done very well. But that was the big thing that was through my head was, how am I going to pick up the skills I need to deliver value here? And that delivering value piece has been, I think, something I got really intru- into and interested in. And that's been a real driver for my career since then. That's really interesting. And then you transitioned to Agreco. Yep. So what prompted the change? And yeah, what, what so, is it? Can you give a, a quick words about what Agreco does? Yep. So Agreco are the, the world's leading provider of distributed energy products. So if you think of a diesel or gas or now biofuel generator powering things like, you know, music festivals, the World Cup. Uh, humanitarian disaster sites, anything like that where you need power, but you're off the grid. They basically, they were the world leader in that space. Um, And Mm. what kind of drew me there was, I think, I think a few things. So one, I was looking for maybe working in a bigger company where I felt I could have a much bigger impact. I think as well, I was interested in getting a view of the world that wasn't uh, so tied to the startup world. So I'd done the kind of startup thing and you're trying very hard to scrape by and everyone's kind of doing everything. <laughs> and I thought, let me see what it's like in a, a slightly bigger company. Still not huge mega corporation, but a bigger company. Um, and then when I spoke to the sort of leader there of that team, um, she was she was really good and sort of, she had a really compelling vision for how to make that company a data-driven company. And then it was just it was just super interesting to, to find out what they were doing and what we ended up kind of mainly focusing on were things like predictive maintenance for the generators and the parts, forecasting of revenue, supply chain demand forecasting, things like that. And it was just lots of again a really good infrastructure to build on top of, but they were also going through their the sort of later stages of their migration to the cloud and the use of use of things like Azure. And we had Databricks in place. There was lots of really great tech to play with there. Um, so that that just got me really excited, and I, I sort of that's what made me me jump ship and change tack slightly. That makes sense. Yeah, and in the startup world, you definitely have to scrape a lot. And as you mentioned, you learn quite a bit because you have to wear multiple hats and you have to sometimes just do everything by yourself. It gets a bit tiring at some point. So it's interesting that you've made that transition and then now you ultimately ended up in an even substantially bigger organization. (laughs) Um, But along this process, um, what was 
How did you think about building your portfolio? Did you have, yep. were you intentional about it or did you, do you have like a space where you kind of regularly come back to and keep contributing towards, or is it just more a bit on an ad hoc basis? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I read a lot of books about, you know, how to think about your career and self, sort of self-betterment books, these kind of things, productivity books, etc. And it was clear from all of them that networking was hugely important. So a big thing for me has always been not just a technical portfolio, you know, like projects, projects on GitHub or a website or whatever. A big thing for me was more how do I grow my network and get exposure to my ideas and thoughts? Because I thought I had good ideas and I was just really keen in that community aspect. So I was really intentional about putting myself forward to speak at events, even when, again, I didn't know much. So the first meetup I went to ever, I volunteered to speak at the next one. <laughs> um, just because I'm that kind of <laughs> person. Um, I was like, I have no idea what's going on, but I'd really like to talk about some ideas I've got. And they were like, sure, sure, it's great. So that gives you early exposure. Um, I think that's that's been a that's been a thing I've kept coming back to is making sure you're you're doing that and kind of getting out there. Um growing your network on LinkedIn and other places. More recently over the past say year or two, it's been more more things in the, the written space. So my blog posts, which are very ad hoc, but just write or writing posts on LinkedIn, things like that, commenting on things. Um and then writing my book was a big one. Um which was published nearly two years ago now, I think. Um, but yeah, in those early days, it was very much around the communication aspect and networking with people and getting my, my sort of face out there. It was less about building a technical portfolio because I thought I could have a technical portfolio that no one sees or if everyone could kind of see me and hear my ideas and know that I knew what I was talking about. And then I could occasionally build up the technical portfolio. So there's kind of... That's one way I approached it. So the technical side was a bit more ad hoc and the people side was a bit more intentional, but both are very important, I think. That's very interesting. Uh, I kind of, you seem definitely seem to, you definitely seem to be the type of person that doesn't hesitate much before jumping. Uh, that's very mm -hmm. good to see. And so now you're, you're in NatWest, you're in a much bigger company. How do you then go from being a machine learning engineer to the head of ML ops? Did ML ops exist before you even joined NatWest? Oh, really good question. Uh, there was there was a, a nascent ML ops effort, but I think the challenge was it was it was struggling to gain traction for a few different reasons. the The technology platform wasn't quite there. I think the appetite for it wasn't quite there. We were sort of still solving the problem of what does production mean for these systems rather than what is going into production repeatedly and scalably again and again and monitoring them and having good controls around them. So, so I think there was something there and there was a lot of good work from, from people who'd come before me, definitely. Um, so I came in kind of that ML engineering lead position I joined was very much because I said to my then boss, Greg Cowan, who's now my, my colleague, um, so I said to him, look, the thing I'm really good at now and the thing I really drive at is getting models into production. And he said, that's the kind of challenge we're facing is with lots of great research and proof of concept and initial stages. We are getting things into production, but just not 
as fast as we want. And I don't want to say I came in and solved it. I absolutely didn't. But I at least started picking at some of the pieces around this is where the challenge is and kind of starting to push through and make little inroads everywhere. And I think that's then morphed into this idea of what should this eventually become? And this should eventually become, to my mind, a leading MLOps outfit where the operationalization of machine learning products is just something that naturally happens. And if you can do that at the scale of one of the UK's biggest banks, financial institutions, then I think you've you've done a really good job. So that's kind of what drives me every day and gets me up and gets me excited is we're one of these huge organizations. We have a massive impact on our 19 million customers. A third of all sterling transactions come through us. So there's just huge impact you can make if you get some of these things right. So, so that's kind of how it's morphed. It was initially, can we get can we get some more things out of production? Now it's became what's the next stage of that look like? And that's kind of where my head's at now and what I think about every day. Nice. And uh, what's, so what was the, the state of MLOps at the time and how, how is yeah. it compared to now? I think we'd, we'd had, again, a lot of good ideas around where things had to go. We had some nascent technologies um, around model management so you know ml flow and things like that the classic kind of model management tools and there was model monitoring happening but it was all very diy having to roll your own and the point was the only people really able to do it were in our central innovation team which i'm part of now i think we're at a point where um and this this stuff's in the public domain we've spoken about it quite a lot so i was at aws summit berlin last year my colleague Greg was at AWS reInvent um, last year as well, talking about we now have a very scalable MLOps and ML platform on AWS built around the SageMaker ecosystem. So we've now got to a point where data scientists, ML engineers can self-serve what they need. So they just fill in a form, make a request, get the environments and tools they need to then build something all the way through to production. Whereas before it was it was very difficult to do that and you needed very nuanced knowledge of our processes and of the steps required. And it would be very difficult to enlist in all the tools and technologies you needed. So moving at pace was really not not on the cards. Now it is, I would say, or it's more on the cards. So we've definitely evolved a lot. We've still got a long way to go, but I think we're, we've definitely moved up that MLOps maturity curve. We're now at the point of saying, you know, the, the problem not, the problem isn't now, how do I get into production? It's more, how do I build a team, an organization that goes into production as often as I need to and keeps doing it and operation and sort of can have a good operations team behind it and can monitor things and take action when there's issues. So, so I think we've came a long way, but again, I've, I'm a tiny cog in a massive machine. I work with tons of really incredibly talented people. There's been a lot of great work that's gone before me. So I'm just, I'm just a very small, a small piece that talks a lot about it, but they, they all do the hard work. So what does the what does a day in the life of an ML ops of the head of ML ops looks like? Zoom meetings, um, <laughs> and more Zoom meetings. No, I'm joking. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff around. So now I'm more senior management position. So there's a lot of stuff around the people aspect and how we're set up as as a team more widely. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot more about our strategy for ML ops. 
what that looks like and feed into lots of different mechanisms for that. Um, so I kind of spend my time doing that and then interfacing with lots of different projects that are important for moving that agenda along and making sure people have what they need to build the components, the tools, the platforms, the ways of working they need. So I do that. I do a lot less sort of very technical chats. I still get involved in those occasional architecture discussion, talking about what tools we should be looking at, things like that. But um, I kind of, it's, it's a very much a strategy process and still some technical pieces. Um, but it's it's very much that. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking more, how does all this fit together and helping make sure everyone's got what they need to, to build it rather than me building it. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. And you were talking about the people side of things. Um, how involved are you with the recruitment side of things? And uh, does NetWorks recruit early, um, early career MLOps engineer or data scientist? Yeah, so I'm um, very involved in recruitment. Um, especially for, for our team. Also, if there's wider recruitment programs on, we feed into those. Um, we definitely recruit people from graduate level all the way up to very senior level. We have a really good graduate program. I would encourage people to check out if they're at that stage in their career. Um, we now have ML engineering roles that we didn't before. So they, they've been okay. advertised in some parts of the bank. So we definitely hire ML engineers at a variety of levels now. Um, so, so we have we have an extremely strong recruitment culture, and we're very clear. I quite like it because we're always very clear what our values are, and I think we always surprise people when they come and interview with us because they think they may have a view that we're a large, very old bank, hundreds of years old in some parts. So they might think we're very sort of stuffy and not very modern and things like that. I think they're always a bit shocked that we're doing such innovative things. You know, and we're kind of we're at, we are at the cutting edge with a lot of things, and I think I think that's that's quite nice when you surprise people and they think, oh, actually, <laughs> I could do very cool stuff here um, and have a great career. So, so yeah, we recruit at all all levels across a variety of different tech, technical roles, but we we now have an ML engineer as a role as well. Yes, what uh, are NatWest values? Oh God, now you've asked me. <laughs> <laughs> Putting on the spot. Putting on the spot. <laughs> We, I'll, I'll speak. I'll speak in broad. So our, our main sort of, our main sort of tagline is to be a, a relationship bank for a digital world. So that's what's always said by our, our CEO. So you can tell right there, when our CEO speaks, we're we're embracing technology from the get go. So we understand that the world is digital first, and that's very important. But we still have the human aspect of relationship, and relationship implies trust, and trust is a huge a huge part of what we are as a, as a brand, obviously, as a bank. People trust us with their with their money, with the core part of their lives. So, so I'd say that's that's a, an absolute core of our values. What we then value around that are things like how we connect with others who are trusted by our colleagues. Um, we value people who are improvers and innovators, so people who want to make things better for our customers and our colleagues um, and I think taking all of that together it, it's just a very positive place I've really I've really enjoyed it so far I've been there two years and everyone I've met is nice it's great <laughs> for such a big organization and I think that's because we have values that kind of align with that sort of vibe and it's a very good it's a good ethos um, so yeah I think I think we have we have very positive values 
and it's just it's very refreshing i think for people when they interact with us for the first time especially in technology where they maybe think oh you may be the bad guys but actually we're the good guys we do lots of good stuff so yeah definitely it's it's surprising to see that because it's pretty much well known that larger and all the companies are they're all trying to do data science but they're like really struggling along and the level of success is very varied yep. when when you're making a hiring decision how how do you know what good looks like i love this question so i think we definitely look for you have to look for some level of technical competency but it's important to note that that's not the overriding factor especially early in your career i think i think a lot of us embrace that skills can be taught um but things like attitude, curiosity, drive, passion, energy, you know, um, empathy. Those are things that are very, it's not that they're innate, but they're kind of, they're things that I suppose are, are very much harder to teach once someone's inside, inside the organization. So so especially for early careers, people will, will look for those things and just see what do they want to get out of their kind of work life and especially in areas like data science machine learning engineering innovation and curiosity are, are big things for us right so we kind of we, we look for that and see if that's something we can nurture and we have lots of resources in the bank so for instance our internal training program the data academy we call it which is one the a data iq award twice in the past three years that's sort of very very big program where people can get access to tons of training courses from external providers free of charge. They can do nano degrees, they can educate themselves. So we have a really strong education and skills culture. But I think the, the thing that's going to make you take advantage of that is curiosity, passion, drive. So we kind of, we look for that more than anything. You do look for things like, you know, are you interested in problem solving? I think if you, if you get very frustrated with simple problems and things, you're, you're not going to like working in data. <laughs> Because every day is a problem, right? But if you get excited by that and think, I want to solve problems and take on new challenges, then then that's that's going to be the right place for you. Um, as you get to more senior levels, we're obviously looking for more advanced technical competencies. So I think things like we'd mentioned a technical portfolio is always very good, or at least can you talk through in some level of detail or with some some real kind of conviction about solutions you've developed in the past and how those worked um, and fundamentally how you worked with others. It's a major thread. Teamwork. You can't work in the 21st century unless you're part of usually a very large team or at least a distributed team. You don't, no one's an island. So that's a big thing we look for as well is how you interact with others and get the best out of the people around you. I think that's it in a nutshell. That's my NatWest cheat sheet for getting a job. <laughs> that's so good. You're a for anyone that's applying, that's uh, just make notes. There you go. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And it's interesting. And I think I agree with you. Being curious, especially early on in your career, is, is really the main driver. You can't assume that you know directly what you're going into. Things will change. Yep. Jobs will change. Yep. And um, especially in ML ops, which is in, I guess, the field is not new, but the name, the naming of the field is. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of tools that are coming up every every week or so, yes. almost like JavaScript. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, 
as a head of ML ops, how do you navigate the trends? How do you look at, how do you identify what's a significant trend or mm. what's just like a hyped idea? Oh, I mean, if I knew the answer, I think I'd be getting my next promotion. Um, <laughs> it's a tough one. <laughs> I think that, that drive and that curiosity is really good because it means the people say that I work with a mind sort of level, a lot of us are steeped in the tech. We come from a tech background. We're really interested. So I think that and having a curious team around us, the people we sort of lead and work with, they're always scanning the horizon because they want to play with the latest, coolest thing. So we're very good at getting that. The hard bit, as you're alluding to, Sophia, and is really sort of triaging that and filtering it and finding the signal from the noise. And I think that's very difficult, especially now, because like you say, you just you look online and you get very overwhelmed. If you type in, you know, what tool should I use for model monitoring? You get 20 different things. What tool should I use to deploy my machine learning models? You get 20 different things. I think what I try and always focus on is more the process questions and the good system design questions. So I try and make sure that we're embracing what what are the processes that have to versions of the models and deploy the models. You know, so if if we are doing those things, as long as we have tools that are doing those things and we're not, you know, 10 years behind, then we should be in a good place for swapping out for new technology as it comes along, um, it comes down the, the line. So I think it's always about actually what's the processes you're building around it, how you're organizing the people, and then just what are the good general principles? So like good software development principles. I prize that over finding the right tool so much more. Because if you can code well, you'll be able to code well, whether it's with tool A, tool B, tool C. And usually you interact with them all the same way now via some software development kit or an API. So there's kind of, we try and get the fundamentals right, I think. And then it means that the specific tooling choice is like a second order phenomenon. In this sense, it won't, it won't make or break your strategy, but the other stuff will. If you don't get the right people together, you don't lead them correctly, you don't build the right processes, you don't design the systems well. If you don't do those things, then uh, no no, no right choice on tooling will help you, basically. So that's kind of how I think about it. But I suppose that's just a version of me sticking my fingers in my ears and going la 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 la, because there's too many things to keep up with. It's too hard. Um, especially with research papers as well. So we do a lot of internal research and development, and it's very overwhelming just now, especially with ChatGPT and the large language model stuff. I'm trying to keep up with the papers on the archive and I just can't. I just skim like the heading and that's me. I count that as reading it. So that's where I'm, that's where I'm going to. I have a bunch of questions around <clears throat> ChatGPT because you mentioned it, but before we go into that, I'm just curious. You've experienced the startup world. You've experienced the medium-sized company world. Now you're experiencing the, the big um, giant enterprise type environment. Yep. What, where do you see your career taking you in the future? Ooh, I hope my boss isn't listening. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I I definitely want to stay. I'm very happy in that West, so I think I'm going to get a, a good tenure in there. I think there's a lot of cool stuff we want to do, so definitely see that in the near and medium term. I think longer term, I would be very up for starting my own company and starting a startup, I think, um, or a consultancy or something like that. Um, depends what my my stress appetite is in a few years, I think we'll see how that goes. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I think 
as long as I'm doing innovative stuff and as long as I think I'm in touch with the latest stuff that's happening, because it's such an exciting time to be in this space. It's it's incredible what's coming out of everywhere, basically. <laughs> There's just so much <laughs> cool stuff. So as long as I'm in, tapping into that and trying to use it in some way, I think I'll be happy wherever. But I think I actually quite like the big enterprise world and I didn't think I would. Because I think if you can if you can get that scale but still be able to work in an innovative way, you've you've hit a good sweet spot, mm. which I, I kind of like. So we do that quite well. I think we've got sort of very try, fail fast, agile research type model working for some parts of the bank. And then you still think it's a huge enterprise with massive impact. So, so I quite like that balance. But yeah, I think eventually I would try strike out my own. I also want to write more books and do more of that kind of stuff. So I'm kind of looking for more content generation, education type stuff. I don't know if that's more a side hustle. don't think I could do that full time. need to get near code somehow. <laughs> okay, well, we're definitely going to get you involved a bit more in the community, um, especially with, with awesome. kind of writing opportunities. But awesome. you, so your writing actually is, is really good. I, I love it. And you wrote... A blog that says, well, the title is Straight Out of Prompton, which I just thought was genius. It was amazing. amazing. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we'll link it in the show notes. But basically, you kind of give a very reasonable breakdown of ChatGPT and large language models and the pros and cons. Kind of, you try to signal out the, yes. single out the signal from the noise. Yep. And I think you do a, a really good and compelling job. Uh, one thing you mentioned is you mentioned the, the scaling hypothesis when it comes to, um, um, to solving the truthfulness problem in large language, mm. large language yes. models. Can you yes. talk a bit about that? What is the scaling hypothesis and can that actually have an impact on the truthfulness? Yeah, yeah. Of- yeah. so I think, I think they're slightly disentangled, but they're maybe related. So the scaling hypothesis, everyone talks about this and then it took me a while to try and chase down what the actual root of it is. But I think it's, it's maybe one of those things that was mentioned at a conference that everyone references it. But um, so there's things like, I think there's a paper, or maybe it's not a paper, but I know people call it scale is all you need. Like attention is all you need from Google, right? Mm-hmm. But the scaling hypothesis, as I interpret it, and I'm not an expert in this area at all, is essentially that as you scale these models more and more, so more parameters, more depth, more data, you unlock more and more capabilities. So, so I suppose the idea is that you can, you're basically not losing anything by just going bigger and bigger. And that actually what you're going to do is you'll eventually, some people kind of in the strong AI view think eventually you'll just kind of have a person there trapped in a computer saying, let me out or whatever. <laughs> um, but you may have to get like 200 trillion parameters or something crazy. So the scaling hypothesis is roughly that. I think that, and, and the reason that people buy into it now is because it's roughly been happening with large language mm-hmm. models, right? If you go back a few years, you know, you get to 100,000 parameters, a million parameters, we're now up at 175 billion parameters or something. And through that, you see incredible gains across a variety of different metrics. And you can just see, right, you open up ChatGPT and you play with it and you think, this is extraordinarily correct syntax it's not Mm. it's not people say it's a stochastic parrot i think it's more sophisticated than that because it's not just it's not just doing some 
taking some letters, some words here and words here, and sticking them together, and you say that there's a miscongruence there. It flows right in a way that tells you there's there's really some new capability unlocked. And the scaling hypothesis is essentially that will keep going. On the truthfulness side, I think what's important is that no matter how much you scale, right, you're not asking the question about truth. So these especially the GPT models, but large language models in generally, in general, the fundamental point is to create passable text from the point of syntax. So does, does the syntax ring true? It's not about, does this answer a question correctly? People are working, working on that now, right? And it's, it's a super interesting area. Like you have the mechanism OpenAI use the reinforcement learning through human feedback. The idea is to sort of say, um, I give you 10 possible, say if 10 possible responses the large language model comes back with, with varying levels of probability, and then humans rank the most realistic ones. And that provides feedback as to not just, not just create this passable syntax, but there's maybe something else encoded there. It's passable syntax, but it's also appreciated by a human. I don't know if that'll scale quite to making things true. I think you probably need other mechanisms in there. Um, but the fundamental, I sort of challenge scaling hypothesis fundamentally because I've I started reading a lot about stuff like Gary Marcus who's kind of a famous in AI circles he gets a bad rap as kind of being <laughs> super anti-AI anti guy but I don't think he is I think he's just he's maybe like me a bit contrarian <laughs> but um, he talks a lot about neurosymbolic AI and the fact we maybe have to revisit the idea of other ways of abstracting information Jan Lacoon is from you know director of AI, whatever the official title is at Meta. He sort mm-hmm. of said similar things. Uh, and then there's this guy I've started listening to, Walid Saba, who's got a great blog and medium, but he's very contrarian in all this. And he sort of says similar things from the point of view of linguistics and cognitive science and things, and just says like, there's another layer we need to look at here. But I think, I think the progress has been incredible, but I do think we need different ways of thinking, especially if we want to tackle truthfulness, if we want to tackle toxicity, and bias, fairness, things like that. I think we're going to have to just think differently. So I don't, I don't think scale is all you need, basically. It's my kind of fundamental thesis, I suppose. That's really interesting. And on the point of thinking differently, I think um, the industries that are going to have some of the most, um, some of the, ma- the most massive impact, we need to start thinking we need to start thinking a bit differently about them. So at some point there will be um, use cases where ChatGPT is going to start to function well in medical fields, Mm. particularly around mental health. There's, there've been some experiments that people have run more or less. um, um, Yeah. More or less ethically correct, but (laughs) another interesting, (laughs) yeah. Another interesting field, which I think is very passionate. It's, It's very relevant for us and we are very passionate about is education. Um, mm. So how, what do you think, what is the contrarian view on the impact of ChatGPT on education? How should educators respond to ChatGPT? There's been a bit of a knee-jerk reaction in some places where they've tried to ban it, which yep. doesn't seem like it's going to lead to anything. It's kind of like yep. banning calculators. <laughs> what, what do you think <laughs> yeah. about that? Yeah. Well, there's this, there's this interesting stuff about watermarking, which I think is really cool. So the idea of OpenAI in other places saying, can you provide subtle statistical biases in the words that are 
provided in the solution that that then become detectable to another model. I quite like yeah. that approach. I think, um, but it's all it's going to become like an arms race, right? Because you're going to have something that can detect and something. Like, so I think it's about collaboration there, and I think OpenAI been really good at saying we're going to watermark this stuff, mm. you know, um, because the potential for sort of misinformation is huge now. You you can imagine like creating pipelines of calling these bots that are very tailored propaganda to people and all these kind of dark, scary things. On the other hand, I think it represents an incredible opportunity for education. I love chatting. I chat to G- chat GPT on and off about all sorts of crazy stuff, right? And it's just great for sparking ideas. So I'm like, explain to me, as I said, one of the examples in the blog, I was like, explain to me what an Einstein Rosen bridge is. And it would, you know, tell me stuff about wormholes. And then I'd be like, my brother and I had this, um, I was teaching my brother about this over Christmas. He doesn't work in computing. And I says, ask it to do stuff. And he was sort of like, what do you mean? And I gave examples. And he ended up saying, I just love this. He said he said to it, because he works in film and media, or used to. He was like, right, write me a scene for an Avengers movie set on Mars, but the Avengers are pirates and they have a feminist agenda. And it came up with, <laughs> it came up with like, it came up with the most amazing stuff. Right, it was like Hulk, Hulk smashed the patriarchy, and, <laughs> and it was, it was like it was, it was incredible. So I think, I think especially in the creative side, creative writing, story, sort of film media, I think, I think there's massive opportunities. I think for education as well, having like this assistant where you can bounce ideas off of, is great. One thing's going to be important though is we don't go all in on it, mm-hmm. and I think that's always true, right? Because if we just teach, I think, I kind of feel like if we just teach people to be prompt engineers, we'll have lost so much. But I think if we kind of get people to to do the prompt engineering bit, but still learn in kind of the ways we're used to a bit, that's more like, you know, you have to really tax your brain, think about hard. I think having people do in-person written exams or in-person verbal exams, but complementary to assignments where you can have these assistants helping you, is all is all going to be? I think it's a blended mix as always. I don't think there's ever one right answer. The danger, the thing I worry about is everybody just assumes these things are correct all the time, so they just like, mm. I'll just not, I'll just not think anymore, which is kind of what terrifies me a bit. So, so I think as long as people are cognizant of that, then it's a great opportunity. But I've I've learned a lot playing around with it. I have had to check a lot of things, and when it's given given me code, it doesn't run and stuff. It's made me think hard. So it's a great opportunity for education. I think. Do you think that prompt engineering is going to be one of the quickest, well, the most short-lived jobs ever? Because yes. Yeah, because it just appeared all of a sudden, but already you can start to ask ChatGPT to generate prompts for you for Dali or for other types <laughs> yeah, of no, uh, yeah, no, right. generative yeah. AI. Yeah, and I think, yeah, exactly. And I think some really interesting stuff around. Um, I, saw, I saw a paper where someone had written a sort of, a templated language for generating prompts to then query. And I was like, we're just going full circle and building a programming language again. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> and then, and then people are asking it, people are asking it to write SQL queries, but the prompts longer than just writing a SQL query. So there's kind of, <laughs> there's this really interesting thing. I think you're right. I think, and there's a great paper. Um, I'm sort of starting to read it about, um, what's it called? Dem- demonstrate. Demonstrate search predict. So I shared this on LinkedIn the other day. 
And it was basically this way you can build composable pipelines with these models. And again, it's like, it just keeps coming back to programming. And I, that's not to say programming will never go away, right? Eventually you might speak into a microphone, you run, launch a rocket to Mars or something. You know, I don't, I don't know, but, <laughs> but I think, I think yeah, prompt engineering to me is just, it's just prompt is too fluid and flexible and creative and engineering's not necessarily that. So I, I think, I think it will be quite a short lived thing. Um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not wedded to it. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I just don't see it being a super long term thing. Although I listen to this podcast in 10 years and be like a, <laughs> a prompt engineer. And I'll be like, what, what did I do? I predicted that wrong. You know? yeah. Are you, you'll start um, a prompt engineering consultancy. Head of, head of prompt engineering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any insights on what else we can expect from the worlds of the world of AI and data science in 2023? Oh, well, generative AI will keep being a big thing. I think it's just, that's, that's the wave we're on. Um, I think we'll have a lot of really, this is what I'm passionate about, a lot of interesting discussions now about truthfulness, monitoring, ethics, bias, fairness, because these models are really bringing to the fore how you can, you can get these things wrong at massive scale. And I think the stuff that came out about, you know, um, OpenAI and the, the, the sort of the, the workers in Kenya having to do the mm. labeling of the toxic data sets. There's all sorts of interesting things that are coming out about the AI supply chain, um, the ethics around that. But I think that's going to be a big thing we have to grapple with quite quickly because I'm already seeing things like people talking about we have to we have to severely regulate this area. I think regulation is in general is a good thing. We should be thinking about it. We don't want to go too far the other way because it's not going to work. You can't just say don't do this; right? it doesn't make sense. Um, but we need to, we need to. I think we'll need to, as a society, build a kind of some some kind of internal guidance around it. It's like something like when you talk about cloning. I keep thinking about this. We talk about <laughs> cloning; it's kind of instilled in us that human clones are sort of a bad idea. Hmm. But it's like, do you know, like, and it's kind of it's it's banned, but we still. Genetic research and stuff still happens. I think there's going to have to be something like that for these AI tools. I don't know what it is, but there's going to have to be like some sort of instilled common sense. And I just don't think we have it yet. And I don't know what that common sense looks like. That's part of the conversation. Um, and I'm very interested in particular about what does MLOps look like for these solutions? So if I deploy these pipelines calling these models, how am I going to monitor them? Because I'm going to have my own guidelines I have to follow, my own regulations, etc. How am I as a company going to make sure I'm checking the output of these models? I think that's a really kind of complex question. So I think there's a lot of challenges. I don't have any sort of answers, but I think if people are thinking about these things, they'll be in a good place for the next few years. Mm, makes sense. Sometimes the best answer to a question is more questions. <laughs> Maybe, but it could get annoying. <laughs> after <all. laughs> It'd be a weird podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. And uh, I guess in that space and in, in that mindset, like what tips would you have for, for students, people that are going to uni now, getting into uni now and are thinking about yep. a job in the AI and machine learning space? Um, how should they stay think, ahead of the game? Yeah, yeah. No, good question. I think my personal view is that the need 
for smart people who can solve hard problems and really get stuck into things at a deep technical level is only going to increase. There's a kind of, there's the potential that we see things coming like these large language models and other solutions and we think actually it's going to automate just everything and we won't need to think. But I actually think that that makes that makes us have more of a challenge. We have to sort of raise our game a bit and start thinking, you know, what's, what's the next most complex frontier we need to push on? So I think... I think all the things people have been doing in this space, we're going to need more of. We're going to need more engineering knowledge, more programming knowledge, which again is maybe running contrary to people who say, ah, there'll be there'll be no junior software engineers in a few years. I just think that's crap. I just do. I just don't see it. I think what will happen is all of our software engineers will be more powerful and more productive because they'll have more tools at their disposal. So I think anything you can do to be aware of these tools are limitations. You can build workflows around them. But I think if you're doing it in a way where you still retain the ability to critically think about them and still problem solve, then you're going to be in a very good place. Um, we are not going to, I don't think we're going to need people in a few years who, you know, can push the button that triggers all of it automated. We're going to need people in the loop getting dirty with these things. So they're going to be people. So I read a really great article. I can't remember the name of it. I'll try and dig it out for the show notes, but it's talking about in 10 years, it may be that we just increase the number of like triple A games that we have tenfold and we do it with a lot less people. So everything's just more productive. We have more good stuff and people who are like artists and things just now, it's maybe what they do is they're working more with, you know, Mid Journey and Dolly and all these other tools, but they're, they're building new workflows, but they still have to really understand and know their craft. So I think, yeah, still honing your craft is really important. Um, I think critical thinking, problem solving, and being adaptable is going to become more and more important. Um, but the future is very bright, I think. I sometimes, I could get labelled a pessimist because I, I sort of poo-poo things a lot on LinkedIn. <laughs> but uh, I think I'm quite optimistic. I think there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. There's a lot of cool stuff to sink your teeth into. So people should just embrace that and get stuck in. Makes perfect sense. Embrace the change and ride the wave. Learn, ride the wave. Get your hands dirty. Try to yeah. see what's coming up and play around. Tinker. Tinker. That's how you stay exactly. ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and, and build if you can build things. Um, whatever the tools are, you'll be able mm-hmm. to do that no matter. It was the same thing we said before about you know good systems design, etc. If you if you are if you have the mindset where you like you say Ryan you tinker um, sorry Alex where you where you tinker and you build stuff and stick it together you're going to be able to do that whether it's GPT ten or you know <laughs> some new thing or Skynet whatever but if you're sticking <laughs> it all together um, you'll 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 always be able to do that so yeah exactly tinker play have fun exactly don't be afraid to break stuff that's the I best part. I love breaking stuff. I'm good at breaking <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, Andy, this has been fantastic. We're a bit over time, so sorry if you have any other no, no, I think that we're, we're okay. running over. But okay. uh, this has been a very, very interesting conversation. Thanks again for joining us. Um, closing thoughts, would you like to share anything with anyone? What's going on? Uh, anything to promote? You have a book? I have my book, Machine Learning Engineering with Python, published by Pact. I'm currently working on the second edition, which will be out later this year. Um, so there'll be a lot more stuff there, more open source technologies, more uh, pipelining, more advanced software development practices. So that's that's quite fun. 
Um, nothing else to promote, really. Always go on the NatWest Careers site. Usually it's <laughs> for cool careers, but otherwise, no. Just um, hope everybody's out there having fun and keeping safe, basically. Awesome. We'll link to your LinkedIn profile. You're quite active on there and to your Medium profile as well. Um, I really enjoyed reading the, the blog posts you've Thank you. Published. I'm now starting to do more in the, the Medium. I, th- I sort of dabbled in that before. I now want to do something regular, so that'd be good. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks again for, for joining us. Hopefully we'll see you back soon. Cheers.